You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on this podcast. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's guest speaker, we have Shane Fernandez, corporate attorney at Rockridge Venture Law. And in this episode, we'll talk about legal aspects of starting a company, specifically some major early stage uh, agreements that you have to form right off the bat while starting the company, uh, what kind of agreements you have to have, and what kind of agreements, the lack of some agreements uh, can kick you in the back down the road. So Shane, let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on Rockridge Venture Law. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm uh, pretty excited to be on here. Um, you know, listen to the podcast from time to time, and it's it's great. So I'm glad to be on. Uh, as far as my background, uh, a little bit of entrepreneur in college, and a little bit after college, trying some adventures of my own that ultimately weren't uh, weren't unicorns. But uh, and that's kind of where I decided to to take this into the uh, the entrepreneurial aspect into the legal field. Uh, went to law school and, and worked at a large firm on the East Coast, uh, doing venture, private equity, and M and A for a few years. Uh, about a year ago, I moved over to Rockridge Venture Law to lead our corporate practice here, and and basically our corporate practice or my corporate practice is uh, is seed to scale to sale. So we do all things from early stage, you know, formation, uh, financing to scale through IP uh, protection, getting patents, trademarks, things like that, um, and then ultimately to sale, whether it's you know private equity, whether it's M and A. Whether it's IPO is kind of where where we handle it. Um, I mostly work with emerging companies and growth companies. I you know do a little bit of M and A and private equity work, but most of the time it is either on investor side or company side of the early stage financing, either the the seed money or the Series A, Series B type money. Um, nice. Rock, yeah, Rock Ridge was founded in 2017, so we're we're fairly young. Oh. Uh, it was um, initially just an IP boutique uh, started by lawyers who were kind of in the entrepreneurial space. So our, our original founder came from, it was a GC at a biotech startup uh, in San Francisco and uh, eventually sold that company and, and kind of found some other, some other attorneys that were in similar situations and started in kind of an IP boutique and gradually a venture boutique that was designed to be for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. Uh, so folks that have kind of been up in the startup community before or had worked with VCs, uh, you know, as counsel to VCs. So um, the model is kind of uh, low overhead. Um, you know, we, we try to share kind of the same general premise. Uh, and that premise is the traditional law firm model is, is broken, um, and especially when it comes from early stage companies perspective where, uh, you know, uniformity is a big thing. I, I think we'll probably get into that today. Uh, and capital is is not uh, is not as heavy as it's going to be, and cash flow is unpredictable at that point. So we think that law firms should be able to accommodate that and, and be positioned to succeed when their clients succeed. Hundred percent, that's the right approach. Love hearing that more and more law firms actually do this, and hopefully one day the American uh, judicial system is going to get better because of that. <laughs> so moving on to the good stuff. By the way, you are a certified B Corp, which stands for Benefit Corporation. What does it mean, and how did it happen to a law firm? 
Yeah. So this is this kind of goes with our general premise of the the models broken. We want to do something that changes that. So uh, I believe it became a B Corp uh, with B Labs in 2018. Uh, I think at that time we were one of the only ones and might still be one of the only law firms with this designation. Obviously, this is a little bit harder to maintain if you have a, a large, huge firm spread across the country or the world um, just because of the rigorous standards that are involved and uh, getting certification and actually meeting those standards. So um, it really fits our personal mantra for, for the, our attorneys and our staff and our, everybody that's kind of involved in our firm. Um, it, you know, it also fits our, our low overhead, low carbon footprint uh, type model. Um, and also our stakeholder type model. So, you know, we want our community that we're in um, and also our clients to grow with us. So it's it's more important than strictly uh, profit over purpose. It's it's profit and purpose kind of working hand in hand there. Uh, we also give 10% of our profits at the end of the year, we give that to charity um, and other types of like environmental um, organizations and things like that. So it's it's a really cool thing to have. It's a great community. There's more and more companies that are joining this community. I think there was like a, a first SPAC acquisition of a B Corp. Um, that tells you how how many SPACs are out there now. And, and so <laughs> right, uh, this is very true. Uh, speaking of you know benefits that your company is providing to the world, I believe that there are also benefits that the government provides to B Corps. Is there some you know? benefit of having the B Corp status because I've seen few startups that are actually like specifically chasing that status just because I believe there are certain tax cuts or something like that. Is there something as good as tax cuts? I don't think so. I think that's something that's kind of pushed around at the state level maybe. I mean, I don't think that we necessarily have any uh, tax benefits from this and I wouldn't go through it from that perspective. I do think that you probably will see um, ancillary like tax or, or grant incentives coming from the doing what it takes to be a B Corp. So like, you know, reducing the carbon footprint or having ESG type governance models, um, sustainability type models are going to probably produce that result. But I don't, I'm really not aware of anything that uh, fiscally really lends us to um, any type of tax involvement. But I mean, for, for us, practically speaking, um, to be a B Corp, what it really requires us to do is, is to plan ahead uh, each year and sit down and think about what our vision is, think about how we're going to implement that, and then after the year end, evaluate how we actually did that. And um, part of that comes from the difference between a, a B Corp, which is the, you know, the certification through B Labs, and then a benefit corporation, like a public benefit corporation, is like a legal entity. So the B Corp really requires that, uh, that assessment side of things, and it um, the B Corp actually now does require you to be a public benefit corporation if you're in Delaware and you're a corporation or if you're an LLC to have some similar uh, type designation. Mm -hmm. Right. So B Corp stuff aside, let's move on and talk about the major topic of today's discussion, which is early stage agreements that early stage startups have to have in place. Uh, can you name a few of them that are just like must have, but sometimes maybe founders ignore them or think, you know, I'm going to draft that down the road. Yeah. So I think that the initial premise is, is like, keep it simple, stupid, right? Like with, you know, companies that we're talking about, it's all about innovation. It's all about changing the game. It's all about doing something different. It's all about separating yourself from your competitors and creating a product or service that is scalable and different. And we don't want that at all from a legal perspective. 
It's uniformity. Investors want to see uniformity. Anything other than uniformity is going to hurt you down the down the road. It's going to cost you probably more, maybe not more upfront, but it's going to cost you more overall. So we're talking Delaware C Corp or Delaware Public Benefit Corporation. You know, make sure you know when you're when you're evaluating and whether or not you go with an online service. You know, keep make sure you're educated as well. Like those online services are great and they're and they're cheap, but they kind of push you in the right the wrong direction. So you know, know what par value should be. Know that it should be extremely low, less than one penny, less than a quarter of a penny, or about a quarter of a penny. Um, know how much number of shares you're going to issue. Don't just issue or authorize a hundred shares and then issue a hundred shares. Like know kind of the the standards that are out there that VCs and scalable companies are expected to have. Um, you know, don't, don't create a preferred stock right away. Um, so yeah, so as far as there's a lot of things that you shouldn't do or things to avoid, and that's kind of this: keep it simple, stupid. Do uniformity. Figure out what uniformity is. Work with attorney on on what's uniform. And, and kind of follow that route. Don't be innovative in your legal documents. Uh, as far as concrete legal documents to really have, founders restricted stock investing. Uh, we can talk about some of the pitfalls of this if you'd like, but yeah, restricted stock investing. Um, you don't want your founders uh, leaving and then holding all of their shares of stock. Um, early, early employee equity, if you're planning on hiring early on and you have low amounts of capital or no capital, uh, think about how you want to structure that. Um, IP assignments are probably the most important thing um, that you can have. So you need to make sure everybody who is owning a portion of your company from day one is assigning their IP rights to the company and agreeing to maintain confidentiality. Um, the last thing you want to do is is to you know have someone leave and not have that assignment over to the company of even just a line of code because uh, it's going to drive down your evaluation. Your investors are going to make you represent a warrant that you have all your IP, and it, it really is the critical asset for most of the companies, at least that that I work with. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, first off, let's let's talk about two subjects. First, uh, founders restricted stock investing, and second, uh, the early stage employee stock pool. I believe that's that's what it's called, right? Uh, so let's let's talk first about founders restricted stock investing. What is that? Is it like a vesting schedule that has to be in place, or is it something different? Yeah. Right. So you usually want your founders to, when they buy stock, that their stock vests over time. So usually it's it's a four year vesting period with what's called a one year cliff. So the one four years means that, uh, let's say you had a, a, a million shares of stock, uh, you know that those shares of stock vest over four years. You don't get all of them on day one. Um, the company has the right to repurchase them at the price that you bought them for, which if you did everything right was less than uh, a penny and uh you know multiply by how many shares you have uh can buy those back if you leave or if you're terminated if there's some other bells and whistles you can put in there and triggers that you can put in there to to deal with that but the idea is that it needs to invest over a four-year period so that you're you're engaged with the company the one-year cliff means that none of those shares are going to vest at all until you've been plugged in for at least one year after that one-year period then uh, the remainder of the stock is going to vest over the next three years on a monthly basis is usually how it's done. If you exit early, um, like through a sale, then the, usually there's a there's a trigger there, uh, either single trigger or a double trigger, which which basically acts to to give you your shares early. Um, and so, yeah, that, I mean that's that's kind of the big thing there, and it's some horror stories that that you tend to see a lot in M and A 
is you get to an exit and then the cap table's got this big uh, chunk of stock allocated to an early founder who didn't stay with the company. Like they couldn't handle, you know, the the rigors of startup world and they never made it, but they own what, 15 to 20% of the company, uh, sometimes more. And so it's, it's a double-edged sword there too. So you might have one, when you get to an exit, you're going to have to get their consent. Like, you know, not, not all corporate exit transactions require you know, unanimous consent, but practically speaking from a buyer's perspective or acquirer's perspective, uh, they, they're not going to want to deal with like appraisal rights or somebody saying later that they didn't sell their shares or something like that um, being involved. They're going to require most unanimous. Very true. Yes, this vesting schedule is extremely important. Usually, by the way, I've seen it's uh, vested over quarterly, not monthly. But I mean, again, it's small detail. Just have the vesting schedule in place. Definitely have uh, make sure that the cliff is in there as well. Uh, otherwise, you might end up with an acquisition where you know your old friend who has been with you for like first two months. Uh, hands up with 15% of the company, which is not cool. All right, moving on to the next topic, uh, employee stock option pool. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Do you have to <laughs> sorry, assign basically a certain amount of shares from the company to the, you know, all the future hires in the very beginning and just, you know, leave it alone there as a stock option pool that's just untouched, or is it like something that appears later down the road? Yeah, it, it kind of depends. I like to get it out there early. Um, I like to get it out there early, even maybe before the initial funding. It depends on what the what the funding needs are. So we have some clients that get grants um, that are you know IP heavy. Um, they get some SBR grants, things like that, where they don't necessarily need to get the first, uh, you know, two hundred fifty, five hundred thousand dollars in from from an outside investor. Um, but so the earlier kind of the better, but but you need to think from the outset, depending on who you actually need to hire. If you need to hire someone that's not necessarily a founder, um, you know, you need to have basically built to incentivize them and accommodate uh, less than market pay for a developer by stock options, restricted stock, restricted stock units. There's, there's different uh, tons of different mechanisms that you can use, but the idea is is that you reserve uh, a percentage of your total authorized shares. Usually it's between 10 to 20%. Uh, I always usually start up at about 10 to 15% of that, that total amount for employees to have. And so it's like reserved. It's like cut off, cut out of the, the, the pizza, it's put in in a different part of the house and you, know, you cut off slices as time goes on. And the reason is, is that investors, um, you know, especially at the series A level, they want, their percentage to be you know, to have they want their percentage to loop in in the what's called the fully diluted capitalization of the company the amount of shares that are reserved under the option pool right so they want when they convert uh, whether it's through their uh, you know, their convertible notes or their saves or their preferred stock uh, to convert it at a percentage that takes into account uh, that employee pool they don't want to be diluted by employees coming on and being issued shares so. Usually at, at the very the latest, a series A investor will make you create a stock option plan. And usually that actually is a pretty good time to do it. Um, if you can afford to uh, hold off employee compensation uh, as far as equity wise until that point in time, because then you kind of know I've got a check coming in the in the in the door to kind of pay for this. Mm -hmm. 
Great. So let's talk about the costs for the founders. I mean, we've covered a lot of stuff and there is much more to cover. So there is a lot of work. What kind of uh, funding would you recommend start early stage startup founders to spend on this kind of, you know, uh, on all the legal stuff, basically? Yeah, it just depends on the type of company like biotech, right? Like if you're patent heavy biotech company, I mean, we're just talking a completely different world than if you're a consumer products brand or a SaaS. Uh, where you might not have to, you know, deal with patents. You may be more of a trademarks and a branding space, and it's it's much cheaper. But uh, you know, aside from from pure IP and, and patent IP, I mean, less than eight thousand dollars at a pre-seed startup situation. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of our premise, uh, at least my personal premise, is that you know it shouldn't be starting a company is is difficult, and it's at that time you really need the most amount of legal help. Uh, and so you need to have somebody who's going to be there for you and kind of be able to accommodate that point of time at a price that's like somewhat reasonable. Um, and my personal belief is that, uh, you know, that should be fixed fee. There's there's no reason that, you know, a, a startup that is generally going to be doing things from a corporate level in a uniform way should be charged at an hourly rate. Um, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, cash flow is probably non-existent. Uh, and the funds are, are super low, so you should know on the, the outset of what something's going to cost you and, and make a decision on whether or not it's important to you at that time. Um, office hours should be included, right? I mean, the fact that you got a restricted stock purchase agreement for X amount of dollars for you and your co-founders is basically worth nothing if you don't know what it means. Um, and so you shouldn't be charged because you have questions on understanding what that is. That should be looped into, you know, firm fixed price. Um, and, and, you know, that's what we do. Most of our work is uh, as far as, um, you know, early stage stuff, uh, it gets a little bit more difficult to do that on a, on a series a, or on a sale and things like that when there's heavy negotiations. But when you're just dealing with the company and your, your company council, we do everything basically fixed fee. Um, and we have office hours that are all tied to that, that are, that are charged separately for that. Um, which for, for us, it. It makes us be uh, more entrepreneurial ourselves. So things that we do all the time, like explaining how vesting schedules work, uh, explains how explain how convertibles note, notes work, how it changes your cap table when it converts. Those things we record on on pre-recorded videos, and we just send them to our clients and say, "Hey, here you go. This should explain it to you. If you have any questions, let's set up time to talk." Um, we also do, we explain documents through like Loom videos where it's off walking through the document with you instead of sending an email uh, <laughs> explaining things you just have to read, which is more difficult mm -hmm. reading the, the document. It's, it's, it's wild. Um, and, and there should be no surprises. So I don't, I, I mean, there, it's not so much as the amount. I mean, I think that less than 8K is certainly doable, um, but there shouldn't be any surprises on that. You shouldn't get a bill saying, hey, an associate uh, spent, you know, 20 hours on this, then a, you know, a junior partner spent time on this and a senior partner spent time on this and look at the bill. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you have to get it right at the start. You don't want to, you know, worry about it on the, in the back end. On the back end, it's going to be way more expensive to fix. Um, we've seen this numerous mm -hmm. times where someone doesn't have good counsel at the outset, but your good counsel at the outset shouldn't completely destroy and run through your capital. Absolutely. So speaking again about you know weird fees that law firms charge because yes, I've seen multiple uh, you know bills coming in and then there is like two hundred fifty bucks and I'm like okay what is this for? And in parentheses it says answering question. I'm like dude come on. Um, anywho, 
talking about that, uh, there are multiple tools that automate this whole process, you know, cap table management, assignment of uh, IT, uh, assignment of stocks to the employees, uh, assignment to stock of stocks to the, uh, you know, teams, et cetera, et cetera. Are there any specific tools that you would recommend startup founders to look into, especially, you know, in the beginning when, you know, they just trying to figure out how to run their cap table, how to assign stocks and all this stuff? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, can't do this as much as I'd like to, but a lot of times I, I buy clients from venture deals by Brad Feld. I mean, it, before you go and you raise money, you need to read that book. Uh, it, it's, it can be difficult to get through because it is a lot of legalese in there, but if you're going to raise money and you're going to go through the VC route, um, you need to read that book. It, it's just, I mean, it's probably $40 on Amazon. I'll plug that book for days. It's a great book. Um, it'll get you way ahead. You'll be able to identify if, if your lawyers for you or not just by reading that book. Um, you know, free stuff. R listen to this podcast. Listen to all the um, other podcasts, similar podcasts that talk about you know early stage financings and um, just how VCs think. Uh, and then from a lawyer, you know, pitching kind of what I do um, before you you know raise any type of outside capital, um, you know, especially if it's safes or convertible notes. Uh, ask your attorney for a pro forma cap table, which basically is a cap table that says, hey, if I give this investor this much under a convertible note or a safe with these terms, and then I raise a series A at this price, how much will I be diluted? Because that's always a shock to, to founders as they give out all this uh, these convertible notes at this cap that they think is great. And then they go and raise their series A at a price they think is great. And then they're diluted to, you know, less than 50% amongst amongst the, the group uh, easily, sometimes even less than 30. Um, so, yeah, just make sure you know all that stuff. Knowledge on the front end will save you a ton on the back end. 100%. I mean, uh, I have tons of recommendations on that side. Spoke to multiple founders of companies that helped do this stuff. So my advice is going to be check out the description of this episode. There are going to be tons of links to those companies that can help you automate this whole process and just you know avoid uh law firms for the most part of course maybe you'll need some extra advice you know uh but definitely check out the description of this episode a lot of good stuff is going to be there moving on to the very last question of today's episode it's a call to action so chain what do you want to listen to do as soon as the episode is over yeah, if, if if you're raising funds and funds are low, I think, and this I guess this is not for necessarily everybody. For everybody, you know, subscribe to this podcast. Uh, but for folks that are strictly about to raise some funds, about to sign a, a term sheet, um, and you're worried about legal expenses, you know, talk to your lawyer about deferring at the very least payment of their fees until you raise the money. That way, everybody's on the same page. Uh, you know, I think that's just principally. Uh, the way to do it. So that that's that's my my call to action or greatest advice I can give. Perfect. Yes, this is a good call to action. Of course, yes, as Shane said, subscribe to Fundraising Radio. This is always a must. Uh, this is something everyone has to do. Uh, but yeah, my call to action is going to be check out the description of this episode. I'll include Shane's LinkedIn in there. Also, there is going to be a link to Rockbridge Venture Law and to those multiple startups that can help you automate it. Like there's cap base, there is uh, first base.io, uh, Stripe Atlas, all this good stuff. I'll make sure to include in there. And also there's going to be a link to other episodes on fundraising really about legal stuff, about starting startups. And 
yeah, that's my call to action. Go check out the descriptions of this episode. And as usually, have a good day.